So again, when you hear that word worship, what particularly comes to mind? Maybe uh, some hipsters in skinny jeans rocking the fedora hat. Or maybe you think of church choirs and robes with lots of sheet music. Is worship fundamentally an experience? Is it something that we're led into? Is it a, it a kind of feeling that just washes over us? Or is worship the conscious, willful response to revelation and truth? Is worship what we observe others doing on stage? Or is it what we're to do while we're sitting in the pew or, or maybe even now sitting in our homes? Is worship synonymous with music? Or is listening to a message as you are now, is that also worship? Is worship what we go to church to do? Or is worship more about who we are as God's people? Is Guy our worship leader? Or is the worship leader the service leader? Or is it the preacher? Friends, when it comes to worship, there is often no shortage of confusion. Right? What is worship? What makes Christian worship distinctively Christian? What kind of worship does God expect of you this morning? Well, friends, those are the kind of questions I want us to be thinking about as we come to Psalm 95. As we come to Psalm 95, let me invite you to turn there now, Psalm 95. And, and as you do, just a word to members of UBC, hopefully this past week you saw the email or the social media posts regarding uh, our next corporate gathering together. So Lord willing, the, the intention is to resume gathering again in, in some limited capacity according to the governor's guidance and directives on May 24th. Uh, if you happen to miss that announcement, if you missed the survey that went along with that announcement, uh, you can actually find the announcement uh, on our website just under that COVID tab. Uh, look in your email for the survey. We'd love to hear from you as we prepare and as we think about gathering together for worship corporately, all of us, once again, or at least many of us, we hope. But that means this morning, right, we're continuing again in the Psalms. And I have to say, right, it's rather ironic that we're considering a psalm on corporate worship when we actually can't, in fact, worship together. Right? So that irony is not lost on me. But my hope is that this psalm will be good preparation for us as we long to gather again, as we hope to gather again soon. Because true worship is the highest and noblest activity of which we, by the grace of God, are ever capable. Psalm 95. All right, I want to read it, follow along as I read, and I promise this week, no karate moves. <laughs> All right, Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. 
for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Friends, as we think about Psalm 95 this morning, it's, it's clear that at least half the psalm is about corporate worship, right? Verse one, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Verse two, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, right? Verse six, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, right? Our maker. Maybe even verse six reminds you of that early 90s song, right? By Maranatha Music. Maybe you even sang it. Friends, it's why this psalm has historically been used in corporate worship and actually is a call to worship dating all the way back to the fourth century. And yet as we think about the psalm, the second half, well, that takes a decidedly dour turn. The joy and the exuberance is replaced, in fact, with a kind of sobriety and a severity. And that's because in part, I think the first half of the psalm is giving us really a, a call and an encouragement to true worship. Whereas the second half gives us a kind of warning against a false worship. And I think the basic message of Psalm 95 is simply this. True worship responds rightly to God's word. Very simply, true worship responds rightly to God's word. And as we think about this nature, this true worship this morning from Psalm 95, I want us to first consider whom it celebrates. And then also think about who's to do it why it's to be done, and how it's to be done. So just to give you some handles along the way, we're thinking broadly of true worship, and we're going to think to whom it celebrates, and then who's to do it, why it's to be done, and then close by thinking a bit of how it's to be done. So thinking about true worship, the first thing we've got to recognize is that it, it celebrates God alone. It celebrates God alone. That's what true worship does. It highlights God. So notice just the commands. Verse 1, let us sing to whom? To the Lord. Not to one another, principally, but first to the Lord. Let us come into his presence. Let us make a joyful noise to whom? To him. Everything about this psalm highlights how God alone is the only proper object of our worship. The very problem, as we'll see with Israel at, at Meribah and Massa, is that they didn't testify to him. They didn't actually trust him, but instead they, they tested him. Friends, it's why in worship, in corporate worship, which we've been prevented from doing, but, but we hope to do again soon, it's why in such worship, we ought to do all that we can to take the focus off of us and to put that focus onto God. 
to put it on to him alone. It's why we don't want to turn our, our morning gathering into a, a kind of production. We don't want it to resemble something like a Broadway play. No, rather it's, it's directed toward God. Right? We want to be thinking about him. It's why we don't want to turn down the lights. It's why we don't put spotlights on people on a stage. It's why I'm even a bit reluctant to call it a stage. Because friends, church, what we attend, what we gather around on Sundays, friends, church is not a performance. The point when we gather is not to showcase our own talents. Right? It's one of the reasons why, you know, UBC, we rarely do musical solos. We do them on occasion, but we do it rarely. We don't typically applaud like it's a performance and, and we want to congratulate the performers. Friends, leaders aren't performers and the congregation isn't the audience. The point of corporate worship, that's part of what Psalm 95 is helping us see, is that we're to turn our hearts and turn our affections off of us and we're to turn them toward God, right? Turn them toward him. We're not coming. We don't gather to make much of ourselves. Lord, we don't even gather to make much of UBC. No, we gather to make much of God, to make much of him. And so whatever might distract us from that objective, whatever might subvert that aim, well, that undermines true worship because worship is meant to celebrate God alone. But friends, notice who's to do it. Notice who's to do it. Is it, is it just the professionals? Is it just those up front? No, actually, all the congregation of God's people are called to do it. Verse 1, oh, come, let us, broadly, us, corporately, not a subset, but the whole body, let us. Verse 6, oh, come, what, let us worship and bow down. Now, we don't know exactly what occasion the psalm. Uh, some commentators assume it might have been one of the great feasts, like the Feast of Tabernacles. But the point here is God is summoning his people. We, plural, right? Let us, we're called to come. And in the same way, right? That was true of Israel in the same way it's true in the New Testament of God's people as, as we're summoned, we're called to gather together in Hebrews 10, right? We're not called to forsake that assembly. We're called rather to cherish that assembly. It's not something we want to consciously ignore, but that actually that assembly ought to be at the heart of our identity as Christians, just as that would have been at the heart of Israel's own identity, to gather together. It's why being a part of a church is something we do, uh, and it's not just something we do in an effort to merely help us on in the Christian life. It's not like a Bible study we might attend. It's, it's not even like a conference we might go to with friends, right? It's not optional. It's not sort of spiritual extra credit. It is, in fact, essential to our lives as Christians. It's not just what we do, you know, on Sunday. We don't attend church simply because we had a good week or because we're feeling up for it. It's not what we're to skip, right? If we've had a bad week, if it's been a challenging week, or if we're not feeling in the mood, the gathering, remember, it's not about us. The gathering is, a, is about God. And therefore, it's not about how we feel or how our week is gone. It's about an opportunity and really a command that we have to come and to worship him. And we actually need that gathering. We're going to see in a moment how badly we need that gathering. It is, in fact, 
deeply for our own spiritual good, and we cut ourselves off from God's grace when we cut ourselves off from that gathering. But even more, this psalm is helping us to see that God summons us to worship him. He summons us to worship him. He gathers us as a people to glorify him, which means we don't glorify him as a people if we don't gather regularly with his people and if we don't gather as his people. Now, that's the who, and that means everybody, not the professionals, right, all of us. But friends, why do we do this? Why do we gather together weekly as God's people? Well, the psalmist gives us, in fact, at least two reasons. And those reasons are that God is both great and he is gracious. He is both great and he is gracious. We gather first, the psalm is clear, because God is great. It says it explicitly, the Lord is a great God, verse 3. A king, a great king above all gods. In other words, nobody compares to this God. You know, one of the things inherent, I think, in humanity is we love to rank. We love to categorize. We like to place things in a particular order. And we often want to know who's best, right? Who's the greatest at any one thing? So who's the best basketball player of all time? There's actually a documentary out meant to help answer that question for you, lest there be any confusion, right? The last dance. But nonetheless, you can watch that documentary. The debate is still going to rage. Was the best player ever? Was it Jordan? Was it Chamberlain? And he would argue, well, Chamberlain had better stats, but Jordan had more championships. Or was it the late Kobe Bryant? Is it LeBron James? Right? That debate rages. And whether or not we're talking about the greatest basketball player of all time, the greatest composer of all time, the, the greatest director or movie of all time, there's always going to be differing opinions. There are going to be books and articles and stories right, to debate that very thing. But friends, when it comes to God, this psalm wants us to recognize when it comes to God, there's no debate. There's no debate about who is best, about who is greatest, right? Nobody compares to him. Verse four, right? From the, from the depths, right? All the way to the heights, the depths to the heights and everything in between. That's all of his, right? The seas and the land, verse five, Wherever you look, up to the heavens, down to the depths, across the seas, to the mountain heights, all of that. God, he made it. He sustains it. He rules over it. Nobody compares with this God. And the rankings of the gods, right? There is only one universally at the top. All agree. That's what the psalm is getting at. Now, you know, when I was a kid, uh, my kids sent me to basketball, uh, my kids, no, not my kids, my parents sent me, the child, to basketball camp. They knew I needed some help with the skills. They sent me, hoping that might help. Uh, kids at that camp, I recall well, uh, they, the kids, even the coaches, always talking, always barking, debating. The kids would go around trying to showcase their new skills at this basketball camp until one day a rumor started to fly that Kevin Johnson was in the gym. Now, some of you won't know who Kevin Johnson was, but at the time, he was a very famous point guard for the Phoenix Suns. And he, yeah, KJ, as he was known, he was in the gym. And he was famous in part because there was an amazing dunk of his in the 94 playoffs where he posterized 
Hakeem, like the dream Elijah one with this baseline dunk. You can YouTube it later. It's remarkable. Nonetheless, the rumor was that guy was in our gym. So we all went running, right? We took a seat. Guys who were trash talking all week, we said nothing, right? We sat in silence. Nobody said a word, all in awe as KJ took the floor, right? Why were we so prone to talk and trash talk and, and taunt others? Why did, we, why did we go silent? Well, it's because we knew we were in the presence of greatness. We were in the presence of greatness. All the petty rivalries that week, they were all put aside. All the players who disliked each other and would play against each other throughout the course of the season, all of those, that bitterness and that competition, all of that put aside. And those enemies became, in fact, best of friends as we're all talking and looking and watching KJ dunk for us. Because, friends, that's what true greatness does. True greatness transcends the kind of petty squabbles, the kind of debates that would draw our attention you know, to ourselves. True greatness, when we're in the presence of that, it draws our attention off of ourselves. And it brings our awe and admiration onto one who is so much greater. And friends, that's ought, that ought to be how it is when we, we come ourselves and gather in the presence of God, when we gather in the presence of true greatness, this unrivaled and unparalleled greatness. It ought to transform our own relationships, turning otherwise enemies into friends. It ought to lead us to put aside all worldly differences and, and to worship this great God together as a family with Romans 15, 6, with one voice. We can, we can gather and we can worship in unity. But friends, we worship not just because this God is great, though that alone would be enough. We also worship him because he's gracious. He's also a gracious God. He is, after all, verse 1, the rock of our salvation. To, just to translate that another way, this is the God. He is the rock that saved us. So not just our creator, he is also our redeemer. So in verse 6, we're called there to kneel before the Lord, our maker. And you may hear maker and you may think just creator. But actually, the, that language of our maker, it's actually the language of covenant. It's the language of God's unique relationship with his people, Israel, whom he formed and fashioned and made to be his very own treasured and prized possession. Friends, in his grace, God had elected these people. And though at times these people would despise them, he would still deliver them. He's the one who saved them by the grace of his own hand, and he would shepherd them by the grace of that same hand. Verse 7, friend, is it not so with us? You know, as Christians, part of the new covenant, we can't help but think, as we think of shepherd, we can't help but think of Jesus. Mm -hmm. In John chapter 10, who's presented as the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who, I give them eternal life, he says. Right? Jesus shows grace. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will what? Snatch them out of my hand. In very much the same way God, by his own hand, protected and cared graciously for his people. So Jesus does the same with us. Friends, we gather because this God of the scriptures is a gracious God. And every Sunday, we want to come and we want to celebrate that grace. Because friends, despite whatever struggles, right, despite whatever trials we face, 
God hasn't just treated us better than we deserve. Recognize he has, in fact, given us the very opposite of what we deserve. So we've, we've by our own sin, we have willfully called down hell upon our own heads. That's what we have done in rebelling against this God. In, in our sin, we've, we've taunted this God. We've begged for this gracious and great God to rightly punish us for our sin. And yet in Christ, this same God has chosen to be gracious to us. He's chosen even to send his own son and die for us. We don't gather because God is in some desperate need to have his ego boosted. We don't gather because God deeply needs reassurance because he needs some, some adoring fans to give him praise. That's not why we come together. We gather because we are those who know ourselves to be rebels who have also been redeemed by this gracious God. And that's why we come. That's why we gather. You know, we can all admire one who's great, but we'll adore one who is gracious. God is both those things. We can admire him for his greatness and we will adore him because he is gracious. Friends, what Psalm 95 is helping you see is that this God, he didn't just make you, but he saved you and he cares for you. And it's that gracious activity of God that I propel you every Sunday, regardless of your circumstances, to worship him. You know, but maybe you're listening this morning or whenever you might come across this this podcast and, and you're thinking, yeah, this great God sounds pretty amazing. He's a gracious God. Yeah, I'm in need of that grace. How do you become a participant and a partaker of that grace? Well, the wonderful news of Christianity is not that you have to buy it, that you have to earn it, that you have to somehow seek to acquire it. Friends, all those things are beyond us. We couldn't possibly accomplish that. The wonderful news of the gospel is that this is what God has freely given to those who would see their need, who would recognize him as great and gracious, the one who has made us. And though we've rebelled against him, he has sent his son to live for us to die for us, to take our own penalty, to take the guilt, the weight of our own sin. Jesus has borne that himself on the cross, died, and then was raised to life as proof that God had accepted that sacrifice. So all of those who see their need could repent of those sins, could place their faith in this Jesus and know that they too can have this God as their God. Yeah. Friend, that could be you right now, whenever you're listening, by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Christ. Because that's the very point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is to make saints of sinners so that all might become true worshipers. Friend, how do we do this? Right? How do we worship together? Well, the psalm helps us see some of the ways we're to do this. And, and I want us to first, First note that we are to gather reverently. We're to gather reverently. Like verse six says, come let us worship. That word for worship is a synonym is just to lay oneself prostrate. It's why he'll go on to say, let us worship and bow down. Bow. Then what? What do we do? We kneel before the Lord, our maker. It's all the posture 
of reverent submission. It's the posture of a subject before his rightful king, right? This reverence and submission. Friends, our worship, when we gather, it should be reverent because we're gathering in the presence of this God. Of course, it ought to be reverent worship. It's not just any king we gather, but we gather before the king of all kings. And there should therefore be a sense of, of awe and transcendence and otherness when we come. And if, you know, if we're not careful, one of the things that can happen in worship is worship can become all about amusement. It can turn quickly into entertainment. But friends, the worship of God should be reverent, not merely self-indulgent. We don't gather as consumers. No, we gather as ambassadors. The goal of worship is not to entertain. It's not simply to provide an inspiring experience. The goal of worship is to honor our king and to make this king known. But friends, it's not just reverently. We're not just to gather reverently. Notice we are also, when we gather, we are to sing joyfully. We sing joyfully. We can't mistake that in this psalm. Twice we're called to what? Verse 1 and verse 2. It's how it opens, to make a joyful noise. We're to come with thanksgiving, with songs of praise. And the Hebrew here is not in any way muted. It's not subdued. right? It is meant to be exuberant and loud. This is not the kind of singing that would just sort of mouth with the lips the words of the psalm. It's not just the kind of singing that might come out as a whisper. No, not at all. It's loud and it's meant to be enthusiastic and, and joyful praise because, of course, this God is worthy. And notice it's not just what the leaders are to do. It's what all are to do. Like, let us. We already thought about this. This is who's to gather and worship, the congregation, which means when we gather, we're not to merely observe others singing to us. We're actually to sing to one another. Ephesians 5.19 drives the same point home. We're commanded, not it's not optional, we're commanded to address one another in song. Same with Colossians 3.16. Singing is meant to be a corporate activity for all, not merely the individual activity of some. Friend, I wonder if you realize that it is disobedient not to sing. When the congregation gathers, it's in fact disobedient not to sing. Now, I got to confess, for the longest time, I didn't have a category for that. I never would have considered that it was disobedient for me not to sing when the congregation gathered. You know, I treated singing as an optional activity. And I think that's probably the attitude of many Christians. You know, we'll sing what if we like the song? Or we'll sing if we feel like we're in the mood for that song. Or we'll sing if we feel comfortable and if we feel confident with our own voice. But friends, none of those are excuses in the Bible not to sing. Now listen, I have a horrible voice. Everyone's laughing right now because I was already told earlier how flat I was. I've got a horrible voice. It is so bad. It is so off key. My kids often think I'm joking. Now, I just say to have a voice that bad has to be a gift. <laughs> I see it as a gift of God. But friends, whatever, however you want to view it, right, you'll have a different opinion, I'm sure, when you hear it. Point being, for the longest time, therefore, I didn't sing. 
I was embarrassed by my voice, somewhat self-conscious about my voice. I thought it would distract. It would actually bring down the quality of worship. And so I didn't sing, right? I was embarrassed by my own voice. But friend, part of what we're seeing is that worship is not a spectator sport. It's not a spectator sport. Whether or not you can sing like Adele, right, or Donna Summer, whomever your person is, Frank Sinatra, Sam Cooke, whatever it might be, the point is not, do you have an amazing voice? What does God call for here? A joyful noise. Friend, even I can do that. You can do that. We all can make a joyful noise to the Lord. And we're, in fact, commanded to do that very thing. Full-throated shouts of praise to God because he is great. And he is greatly to be praised. Friends, as an aside, this is, in fact, what much of the Reformation was all about. So we think about Luther and we think about justification by faith alone. And it was about that. But for Calvin and a lot of the Reformers, the point of the Reformation was to actually return worship from the professionals and to bring it back to the people, to bring it back to the people. Because in medieval religion, the congregation, well, they were just spectators. They were observing and watching what was taking place before them. And all of the smells and the bells, that was meant to create this impressive spectacle. It was meant to wow them, and it was meant to be done vicariously for them. So Calvin's desire was to take the worship from the priests and return it as God intended it back to the people because that was God's own purpose. I think one of the sad commentaries on contemporary worship is in fact how Romish so much of our worship is because it is done up front by the professionals ostensibly almost it seems vicariously for the people and they don't participate. Friends, we're called to participate, to be active in our own worship, and to sing and to shout joyfully. Friends, it's one of the reasons why we try to keep the music at UBC simple. No one likes all of it, but I get it. That's frankly true at a lot of churches, but it's especially true, I think, at UBC. But we're trying to keep it simple, and we're trying to keep it congregational, because all are meant to participate. Recognize when you become a Christian, you become united to Christ's body, which is the church which means you are automatically enrolled in the choir. I know churches have choirs and they have choir tryouts, but most theologically, the congregation is the choir. And when you become a Christian, united to Christ's body, the church, you're enrolled in that choir and you're meant to sing. And actually, your singing becomes essential to the spiritual vitality of that church. It's an essential stewardship you have to encourage the saints around you. Friends, we're not only to gather reverently, though. We're not only to sing joyfully, though we are to do that. But notice we're also to listen obediently. We're to listen obediently. Because sadly, God's people, we can gather with apparent reverence. There are many gatherings that seem plenty serious. And we can gather, we can sing our hearts out. We can belt and we can sway and we can move our own hands we can appear deeply moved when we're not actually moved in any way by the truth of God's word. Friends, the true measure of worship is whether or not we obey what we hear. Do we obey what we hear? Notice verse seven. It's why we read, today, 
if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. Friends, worship is so much more than merely singing. Worship, in fact, begins with listening. It doesn't begin by speaking or singing. It begins actually with listening. Because to hear, to receive God's word is one of our most basic acts of worship. And we're not merely called to hear it. The hearing of God's word implies an obedient response in the scriptures. We're to respond obediently to that word. And of course, that's, that's what's much harder, isn't it? It's much harder to respond obediently. And yet, what did we say? True worship responds rightly to God's word. It's part of what we see. And we're given a warning in the second half here from Israel's own history. So Meribah and Masa may not strike you. You may not recognize those names. But if you go back and look at Exodus 17, one of the things you come to find is right there. Israel had experienced the great plagues in Egypt, had watched God deliver those plagues upon the Egyptians. They had witnessed the tremendous parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of fire, right? The cloud of smoke, even the manna in the wilderness, right? Those like those honey donuts from heaven, right? They ate those. They didn't just see them. They partook of them. They had experienced all of that. And yet, it's not what, but like days later, days later, they're thirsty. And what do they do? They immediately grumble and they begin to quarrel, even to the point of nearly stoning Moses. And so that place became known as Meribah, which just means quarrel and Masa, which just means test. Because when you read Exodus 17, 1 to 7, you realize they weren't fundamentally quarreling with Moses. They were, in fact, quarreling with God. They were testing God. He was the one they were frustrated with. And instead of hearing God's voice and heeding and trusting in this shepherd who has just delivered them out of Egypt, what do they do? They actually assume the shepherd has led them out into the wilderness to kill them. And yet to prove his care, what does God do? He brings water from the rock to remind them yet again, as if they needed another reminder, that he is great and he is gracious. You know, in the same way, Moses later on in Numbers, you know, we read about how he sends spies into the promised land. And, and for 40 days, they're there in the promised land. And then they come back and they report that in that land, there are great peoples and mighty peoples and and powerful nations. And what do they do? They beg to go back to Egypt, assuming yet again that God has led them there to kill them. They haven't learned their lesson, which is why the entire generation would perish 40 years each year for a day of their unfaithfulness there in the wilderness. Numbers, you can read about that in Numbers 13 and Numbers 14. It's why we read their hearts had grown hard, verse 8. They had gone astray, Verse 10, evidenced by how they did not obediently listen to God. And friends, notice the consequence. That entire generation did not enter God's rest. They were denied entrance into the promised land because true worship responds rightly to God's word. And friends, notice this hardening. This hardening, sometimes God hardened hearts. But in this case, they hardened their own hearts. They hardened their own hearts. This is what the people did to themselves. How did they do it? By, again, disbelieving God's word, by doubting his own care for them. 
I wonder, my Christian friend, if you are in any way at risk of doing that this morning, disobeying God's word, doubting his care. You know, I think a danger we all have is to judge God's care of us on the basis of whether or not he's giving us exactly what we want when we want it. That's how we tend to measure God's care of us. Our agenda, is he meeting it? And is he meeting it according to our timetable? And if God gives us what we want, then we're grateful. We say, yeah, he's faithful, loving. We move on with our life, often quickly forgetting his faithfulness. But if he doesn't give us when we want, when we want it, what do we do? We can begin to grumble. Our hearts become sour. We begin to distrust God, even become a bit bitter and angry toward God. We're no different than Israel there in the wilderness, and our hearts can start to harden. Friend, if that's you, God is saying, this psalm is for you. And he's saying, be warned. Be warned and take note of the hardening of that heart. What are you to do about it? Hebrews 3, 7, all the way through 420, is actually an extended treatment of verses 7 down through verse 11. It's one of the most extended treatments of any Old Testament set of verses. I'd encourage you to go read Hebrews 3, 7 through 420. And part of the answer to one who sees the hardening of that heart is that together, corporately, what we must do is we must exhort one another every day, Hebrews says, as long as it is called today. Notice how it picks up on that today from verse 7. As long as it is called today, we're to exhort one another so that none may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews 3.13, which means we need people in our lives. We need to be encouraging one another in God's word. Hebrews 4.11-13, it's no accident that at the end of this entire section, what is discussed but how the word of God is living and active, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword. That section concludes this warning because we have to rightly respond to the word. And the word is the means by which we fundamentally worship God and show our obedience to him. Friend, you've got to know the word. You can't obey what you don't know. And many of Israel's stories, we're told they're given to us as examples Negative examples right here so we won't follow in the same steps. And sometimes positive examples like later on in Hebrews that we would follow in the steps of the faithful. And friends, we also, right, if we want to we see our hearts softened, if we want to see them more pliable, then we want to see them sensitive to sin, which means we want to embrace any conviction we feel over sin. We don't want to dismiss that. We actually want to embrace that conviction over sin. When we're struggling individually, that's exactly when we have to gather corporately as the psalm calls us to, because it's there, right? In that corporate gathering with others that our hearts and our affections, they're lifted off ourselves and onto the one who is worthy of our own worship. Friends, it's there, right? In the corporate gathering, what we haven't been able to do, but we hope to do, where Christians, Lord willing, gather reverently, where we sing joyfully. And hopefully where we listen obediently. You know, just a word to moms. Uh, in this season, right, this COVID season, there's a ton asked of you. There is a lot asked of you. Many of you didn't train to be teachers, and yet you're finding yourself 
in many ways that are difficult and test and challenge you, you're finding yourself to be a teacher. Many of you didn't train to be counselors. And yet in the season where some of your kids are discouraged, they can't do what they've been able to do, you feel like you have to be a trained counselor. You know, many of you become event planners. You know, kids are bored and you're trying to keep them active, keep them engaged. Right? There are a million things in addition to all the other things that you feel called to do and you feel pulled. But recognize the greatest single legacy that you can leave your children is that of a true worshiper. A true worshiper. One who gathers reverently. Who sings joyfully, who listens obediently. Friends, that, moms, that's, that's the legacy that you can leave your children, and that legacy will remain with them. That legacy is something they can call upon. That legacy will continue to teach them far after you're gone. But friends, that's not just what God requires of moms. It's what he requires of all of us. This kind of worship is to be true of us. Friends, is it true of you? Is it true of you? Let's pray. God, we give you praise. We give you praise that you're gracious, you're forbearing. Lord, you are great and gracious. Both those things, ample reasons by which we can come to praise you, not just admire you, but adore you for your grace. Lord, we pray that we would be marked as those who hear and who listen and who respond joyfully. Lord, that is what we will do, and we pray it's what we will increasingly do now. In Jesus' name, amen.